Well, guys, welcome to the Hunt Back Hunter podcast, and thanks for joining us today. Uh, this is a Monday Minute. That's a bit different. You know, often it's uh, Steve and I answering listener questions on a Monday Minute, but he is actually still in Alaska chasing sheep on a heck of an adventure, uh, and we'll be talking about that in weeks to come for sure. So stay tuned for that. But on this Monday Minute, um, I've been getting a lot of questions on rifle-related topics on many fronts, uh, A, in relation to things we've discussed on the podcast, uh, B, in relation to some of the content that I've personally put out there um, about my rifle build uh, that I built off of Atika, which you guys have either maybe heard about on a previous podcast, or I've also uh, had some articles on the Exo Mountain Gear website uh, about that rifle. Um we got John from Mesa Precision on today to answer your questions. So any emails, things like that, that I've been getting trends in terms of questions or things that come up, I just wanted to chat with John about. Um, John from Mesa Precision is someone that I've personally turned to uh, just to get my questions answered. And he's helped me with the Tika build uh, and some other things. And just a guy that I have gotten to know and trust uh, and value his opinion on. Uh, he's also super laid back and humble, um, which I appreciate as well. So I want to get John on to help answer questions from you guys, things that have come through from the podcast, from email, things on social media. And we really hit a variety of topics today, um, you know, as it relates to both upgrading factory rifles as well as building custom rifles, looking at things like barrel upgrades. Uh, we talk barrel length. We talk cartridge caliber stuff a bit. Um, there's a lot in here. So, um, just a scattering of everything rifle related, uh, and answering your questions. So if you didn't catch it previously, John was a guest on episode 204. Um, and we specifically talked about rifle stocks in that episode. So we really dove deep into, uh, the anatomy of rifle stocks and what that does for the hunter, what that does for recoil, we talked about the different materials, how to select a stock, when you might benefit from upgrading a factory stock, for example. So if you want to dive deep into a discussion specifically about rifle stocks, go check out episode 204 with John. But that's enough of that. Let's dive right into it with John from Mesa Precision Arms. John, welcome uh, back to the Hunt Back Country podcast, man. Thanks for taking some time to chat again. Yeah, buddy. Uh, glad you reached out and we can connect before it gets super busy for both of us. So Yeah, it's kind of prime time right now for sure. Uh, to kick things off, man, I'm just curious. You just got back from an antelope hunt, killed a great uh, a great buck there, a great goat in New Mexico. Um, what was your personal setup? I'm just always curious as someone like yourself who's a gun guy. You can build anything you want, pick anything you want. What did you take for that hunt and why? Yeah, no, it was, it was a fun hunt. Uh, spur of the moment, found a good place to go hunt down there and and made it happen fortunate enough to kill a uh, a great sized uh antelope and and uh anyway it uh like you said you can pick whatever you want to take and, and basically i i just uh i kind of took what what mesa precision does for their bread and butter uh it was a it was a carbon hunter build i guess we call it and it's uh titanium action a uh our altitude stock of course and then uh uh, proof research barrel and then the caliber of choice i chose was uh six five uh creedmoor believe it or not um and the reason why i wanted to, i i went back to the creedmoor and i i dropped down to the 130 grain burger bullets and the velocities i was getting was uh pretty substantial for the cartridge and, and trajectories are great and low recoil and uh i just like being able to see what i'm hitting and just seemed like it fit fit for the the hunt for sure so i was pretty excited yeah cool yeah it's funny the the swing i would say of the creed more is it it hit peak popularity and then now i think a lot of guys are jumping on the the hate of the bandwagon of the creed more <laughs> uh, i got a lot of rap here at the shop and i'm like well yeah ballistics are ballistics and this thing's cranking for how much you know recoils on it so i was i was excited yeah so. well it's funny because i uh i had you just build me a Creedmoor. So I, I went through all that in terms of picking like, do I want to go Creedmoor? Do I want to go PRC? Do I want to do something else? And, you know, it just comes down to one of those things where in my mind, I wasn't looking for a do it all. I was looking to fill a specific role um, with this new rifle that I had you put together for me. 
you know, yeah. antelope game, deer, certain ranges, wanted to go short barrel. Like there's all kinds of factors that can go into a decision. Um, and if you understand what a Creedmoor does well, and it does a lot of things really well, and you understand what its weaknesses are, or maybe what it's not excellent at, you know, just make the choice, right? Like it, it's the caliber and cartridge debates are funny to me uh, right. because there's just, there's a never ending discussion there. No, it, it never ends. And, and, you know, like just so everybody knows, like I, I keep everything probably six to 700 yards and closer maximum for, for uh, taking animals. And that's only if the conditions, you know, kind of let you, i.e. the, the wind or the, the positional, the sh- position of the shot or, you know, whatever it is, but, that Creedmoor covers a lot of bases with, you know, from mule deer size animals down and, and even on some elk in some cases. So it's, fits a lot of, fits a lot of parameters for sure. Yeah. So to get into some listener questions, I wanted you to weigh in on, and this, you know, feel free to not only answer the listener questions, but you're talking to customers every day who are looking to build rifles or upgrade rifles or things like that. So you obviously have a a perspective of talking to customers all the time and kind of looking at the market. Um, I know this is a huge question, but just to start off from a super high level, one of the questions that comes up over and over and over again is, do you start with a custom build or should you take something um, and then upgrade it over time? And that could be... um, different platforms right so essentially that's what i did with my tika i bone stock tika out of the box over a period of two to three years i basically began to make some changes and i did that at my own time and on my own budget and figuring out what components i wanted and to be honest with you i didn't i didn't begin with that tika with an end goal in mind that process was something that i just upgraded over time as i either wanted to or found a need or found something I wanted to improve upon in that Tika. And I think for me, that's like one of the most important considerations that a guy should think through if he's looking to do an, an upgrade versus an all-out custom build is if if you're doing a custom build, you should know what you want. Like that's the reason you're building a custom rifle is because Correct. here's exactly what I know I want down to cartridge and components and barrel length and goal weight and what bullet I want to shoot even ideally or potentially uh, what game I'm hunting at what yardages and all that. Like if you know the answers to all those questions, then yeah, a custom build makes more sense. If you're just going, I want a really nice rifle. uh, Maybe it's an upgrade over time situation, but what, how do you, I guess, you know, look at that conversation from that super high level of building off of a factory platform versus going full on custom build. Cause you guys do both. Yeah, yeah, totally, man. We support both sides, and we're not we're not uh, just totally full custom shop for sure. We we definitely support guys uh, that are taking on these projects with these Tikas and other platforms, and and try, kind of taking over the role of research and development, so to speak, or or the process of of getting the thing to shoot the way you want it to. But um, I guess let's start on the on the custom side of things. Uh, you know, all of our customers that go full-blown custom, there's things that, that come in the main factors, and there's two of them. It's it's time and money, and both of them kind of reciprocate each other. Um, you know, there's guys that are that are super busy in their professional life, and they don't have time to go through the processes of making sure that this thing, that their rifle is going to perform. You know, they can't go to the range all the time. They can't sit there and, and uh, you know, look up ballistics and, and compare bullets and all this stuff. They, that's what they're relying on us for our knowledge uh, to do. And, and the componentry is, is, you know, hundred percent top notch. Of course, uh, there's nothing, we don't leave anything, um, on the table. And, and with that, with that extra time and those extra components, the cost that the cost goes up. So, so we know what the market is and everybody can do their research about what companies, how much these rifles, these full blown custom rifles that, that are being built cost. And, and so, you know, it makes, people's eyebrows just like whoa what, what's going on here with this price but you know to this the facet of there's a lot more man hours and a lot more time in those rifles than let's say a, a tika um out of the box like like what you started with you know um and so that's what the consumer has to has to decide if they want to spend more money and less time go with a full-blown custom and you're gonna get something that's kind of already ready to rock and roll for you don't have to go to the range all the time. 
you know, you should, you know, shoot it, of course, but all the variables are kind of taken out. Um, and then on the opposite spectrum, we got companies like Tika, you know, and, and the Savage craze, you know, years ago that where guys were, were swapping barrels out with a barrel nut and that kind of caveated into Remington coming up with a, a barrel nut guys creating a, a process for that, for Remington actions. Um, and then, you know, Tika's Tika, you know, they do the right thing. They, their machine tolerances on their, their, their uh, actions on the inside and the way they chamber just uh, their, their barrels, they just shoot and the way they manufacture their barrels. They just shoot really good. Um, the unfortunate thing about Tika is we all, the reason why we're talking is they have to cut costs somewhere so they can have the prices for the consumer be where they need to be. Um, and that's usually the, the componentry, i.e. the rifle stock and the bottom metal um, components. Um, ergonomically, they, they fit up, they fit the bill to, to be able to shoot, but they're just lacking in, in a couple things. And that's the reason why we have the, the altitude stock for the Tika. So, yeah. and what, when, what I can say to people that are wanting to get into the, the Tika side where they want to slowly build, it's just, you're going to save some money um, over the custom builds, but you're going to spend a lot more time with your rifle and you're going to have to understand how it goes together, comes apart, what happens. Uh, it's kind of shooting a little weird that get that action screw in there um, properly torqued or that put, you know, all those factors. So it's kind of a fun process on both ends. So it's just people deciding what, what route they want to take, I guess. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, some guys want to tinker, right? Like, they want to go For through sure. the process and troubleshoot and all that. And like you said, other guys, zero time. I just want to, I want something that I can get in my hands and shoot it and not deal with tinkering and troubleshooting and chasing yeah. my tail, right? Right. It's interesting, the, uh, you know, one of the big things that I've gotten a ton of questions on on my Tika, and I, just to like throw the caveat out there, we have zero affiliation with Tika. We, that word's already been said 800 times. That's simply because we're talking from the context of a build that I did that <laughs> happened to be a Tika that I bought off the shelf. So uh, there's nothing going on in terms of uh, us talking about Tikas. But I do see it come up, and I just want you touched on it, but like take, for example, I did the proof carbon fit, uh, prefit Tika barrel um, from right. proof for my rifle. And I notice, um, you know, Proof only offers prefits for certain actions, um, and Remington's not even one of them. And from everything I've read, that just comes down to what you mentioned. Some factory actions just don't have the tolerances uh, that essentially meets proof for requirements for a prefit. Uh, Tika happens to be one of, them, one of them, and there are others. But you can't necessarily go by a, a Remington 700 prefit from proof, right? Talk a little bit about what's going on there. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's a plethora of custom actions out there, of course, as everybody sees in the market, even with our action um, that we have, and we'll get on that later. But with the factory concept, uh, Tika is, uh, for a shouldered barrel blank, is it's amazing that a factory-produced rifle can have that. And proof, you know, proof research is second to none when it comes to tolerances and doing what they do good. And uh, and they, they they saw that, and they, they uh, exploited it, which they should have. And uh, yeah, for some reason, Tika just, uh, and, and we can go into further detail. I don't really want to get into it with numbers and stuff like that, but the tolerances from, you know, their, their headspace are, are spot on, man. And, uh, the way they do it, you know, they're kind of lackluster. I mean, it's a square blocky action and there's some things that, that some features that could be added, but that would just create more machine time and cost goes up and it just kind of like they hit the you know, hit the perfect niche with what they got going on. But, you know, Tika, like you said, it's, it's awesome that proof can do that for us. So, yeah, that's cool. What is the, I guess maybe hit on some of the pros, cons, things to think through on something like a proof prefit versus something that's, you know, just a straight blank that a Smith like yourself is spinning up for that action. What do you, what are some of the differences there? Um, not, you know, not too much. I, I, uh, proof research and us are very close. Uh, we do a lot of business together and, 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 you know, if nobody knew this, I'm actually on their, uh, one of their hunting team ambassadors. So like we got, we got a really in-depth look at how they do things and they're not afraid to show us, even though quote unquote, we build rifles and they build rifles. I got to witness their, uh, chambering process for these prefits and how they do it. And it's, it's just amazing how they're doing it. So 
kudos to them. Um, you're, we're, just to let the consumers know or everybody out there listening that you're going to see a lot more prefits come from a lot more companies as as time goes on. And, and you probably might see something from us uh, in the future. But um, Proof Research is doing a dang fine job. And uh, they just got it. They got the process down. And and the way they're the way they chamber and the way their barrels are made that everybody hears about or knows that has owned them, they, sh- they just hammer, you know, they, they do really good. Um, there's a small percentage of barrels out there that, that people have issues with. And even if there was an issue that their customer service is second to none and uh, they take care of you no matter what. So we, we believe a lot in what they're doing for sure. So when it comes to a prefits, that can be a DIY job. Like a guy can pick up, uh, you know, a vice and spin that on and do go, no go gauge and headspace check and all that. Uh, but I know I haven't done it. I had you install my, uh, prefit on my Tika, but I have also seen guys run into issues, even just getting a Tika barrel off. Um, so I guess maybe just touch on if guys are hearing this and they're interested, is that really a DIY job? Is it better just to have somebody do that prefit for you? Maybe, you know, some of the things to look for. And if you can even touch on what would it take to have you guys install a prefit, for example? Yeah, no. Yeah, we get the question all the time, like we discussed prior. And, you know, Tika barrels are set to a certain torque specification that's that's incredibly tight. Um, they do that for their reasons. Uh, uh and what we see is we get calls all the time is, hey, I got a proof prefit. I can't get my barrel off my Tika or a lot of guys damaging their, their actual receivers trying to get these, these barrels off because they're buying a um, aluminum barrel vise and they're getting an action wrench and they're actually twisting their actions and then turns into a bigger problem than, than they want to have to deal with. So we actually, uh, we have guys, you know, you send in their, their Tika barreled actions with their barrel or they buy the barrel through us. And, and we, we actually, uh, make a relief cut on, on the barrel to get it off properly. So it just spins right off. Um, it, it damages the, the existing barrel. Um, so if you're wanting to save your barrel, it might not be an option that you want to go, but we, we, the action is hundred percent, uh, taken care of. There's no issues with with bending or torquing or anything like that and uh, it's a simple process it takes about 15 minutes you know we charge 75 dollars for somebody to send their their action to us and have us install a barrel for them and then we ship it and then they have to pay shipping back of course but that's what people have to understand if, if you want to wait about a week and uh, spend a little bit of money you don't have to deal with the stress of of doing it yourself and and wondering oh did i screw something up or you know because we all just you don't want to have that worry in the back of your head if things aren't going the way way expected. So we're here we're here to support anybody willing to to send their stuff out, and we'll turn it around real quick for them. So cool. It's um, a topic that I don't even I don't know. There's a million opinions on this question, but I'm just curious mm-hmm. what is yours, and it may not even be a strong opinion, but what do you feel about barrel break-in for a new barrel? So if a guy gets a new, just theoretically, we're already talking about a proof prefit or whatever, what are your personal thoughts on barrel break-in? Uh, people are going to scold me for this, but it's okay. Um, we've shot hundreds and thousands of them, so we're good. We know it kind of works, but today we're fortunate with technology and and just to let people know, like a cut rifle barrel, I like well, the rifling is actually cut into the barrel as opposed to in the past, there was a lot of button rifle where they act, so button rifling is where they actually press the rifling into the barrel, so stress it in there. Um, and we'll we won't go down that rabbit hole of what's better and what's not. But the cut rifle barrels, uh, you know, they cut them uh, the way they do it, and then they actually hand lap them in, and and hand lapping actually takes out any sharp edges or imperfections, burrs or anything microscopically that we can't see or anything that causes uh you know accuracy issues so with this hand lapping process now we got a a smooth mirror finish inside that barrel so there's a lot less copper fouling a lot less fouling in general that's happening as opposed to those button rifle barrels um from back in the day and and every barrel is different every you know people are saying well i get fouled and we do too just you kind of have to let the barrel talk to you so 
long story short is we spin the barrel up, we go out and we shoot, you know, five to 15 rounds just to see what the rifle's doing. Um, we'll actually take the rifle back to the shop. We'll completely uh, take all the carbon out of it, take all the copper out, copper out of it. And then we'll go back and, and see what it's doing. And usually they're right back to where they were before. And then after that, we just shoot and uh, we let the rifle talk to us. So after, you know, 30 to 40 rounds shooting groups and stuff like that or shooting at the distance and we're still holding tight, we might, I might go back and, and clean my gun one more time after that. And then the next time I might not clean it for 100 to 150 rounds or 200 rounds, believe it or not. But if I see a deviation in accuracy or, or something, some pressure issues, let's say, um, we'll go back and, and go ahead and scrub it, but we really don't we try not to scrub the, you know, thing clean every time we're kind of drifting away from the old bench rest methods and the, all, all that stuff. And we're noticing, um, our, our deviation of accuracy. I mean, we're staying in the same accuracy note as I guess for, for target or group sizes as we were at the beginning. And, and we no, noticed that by scrubbing a barrel all the time, you're not only wearing out the barrel a little bit more, but, you're changing bore diameters and, and stuff like that. And that sweet spot where you have your load or your ammo shooting. So, so basically it could be to answer your question after we, after we scrub it once or twice, we might not clean it for, for a very long time. So mm-hmm. that's where it's at. Yeah. So you're, you're not, uh, like you said, the bench rest guys or these old magic formulas of shoot one clean, shoot one clean for five rounds and then shoot three and then clean for another 15 rounds or, you know, that whole deal. People do it. And I talked to, you know, Bartline Barrels, Frank uh, Green over there is a great, in fact, Bartline has a great uh, uh, PDF file of how they, they deem to break in barrels. And I agree with it. Um, Proof research, you know, those are the two barrels we shoot all the time. So it just hit or miss. But after, after doing this a long time and shooting all these barrels, we have, uh, it, we let really let that gun talk to us. You know, we don't, there's no, Oh, after 50 rounds, I have to clean it. That gun's going to tell you whether it likes it or not, you know? And, and the biggest thing is we don't want to get it so, so dirty. Like you, you create carbon, you know, carbon gets nasty and, and you can get so much carbon in there where it becomes an issue. Everybody hears about a carbon ring and stuff like that. Don't really see it on anything but the big overbore magnums you know happen prevalently so just but that gun will tell you it's not liking it because it'll start shooting a little funky and you'll know it's time to to scrub it out so another uh barrel topic that came up more than a handful of times was barrel length and uh what stood out to me is a lot of the guys asking these questions about barrel length didn't add anything to their question other than what is the best barrel length or what is an optimal barrel length. And to me, part of the part of the answer there, part of the equation, part of the question should be for what cartridge and for what purpose, right? Because barrel length and what's best can be varied based on what round you're shooting, what your intended purpose is. Um, so I guess first, John, like just at a high level, if you get a generic question what's the best barrel length? There's one guy specifically put it, what's the ideal barrel length for a backcountry rifle? What are the follow-up questions you have for that customer? Because you need more information than that to give him an answer. Yeah, totally. It's all, and the first question would be based on what cartridge are you shooting, you know? And, and, and then the next question right after that is where, where's your comfortable range of, of, of taking big game at, you know, distance wise. Um, and, uh, after those two questions are answered and they usually fall in the same parameters that we all go down, like with the, the six, five PRCs or the 300 PRCs and, or whatever it is, you know, these cartridges are capable of, you know, killing animals with a short barrel out, out past where we want to actually shoot probably. So, um, no, the barrel length issue, I mean, the, our discussion, uh, it's, it's the barrel lengths are getting shorter, man. And, and as we, realize we don't need a 26 or 28 inch barrel, you know, um, to be able to shoot at extended distances, you know, 600, 700 yards. If you really break down the ballistics of what we're doing, it's, it's kind of, you see why the barrels are getting shorter. 
the comfort level of carrying them, you know, sit backcountry guys, it's weight, you know, um, nobody thinks about this, but one man shelters, you know, it's so awesome to have a 20 or 22 inch barrel rifle in there with you as opposed to a big old cannon, a 26 inch barrel with a muzzle brake, you know, and, and stuff. Um, that's what I personally notice, uh, the way we carry our rifles, uh, on our packs now, it's so nice to have, you know, and you know, this going through a, a conifer stand or, you know, somewhere with trees or brush, you don't have a big old, you know, flagpole sticking out of the back of your pack, you don't, you know, ducking down and getting stuff stuck and stuff. So, um, and then when it comes to the ballistic side, that's what everybody's worried about. How much velocity am I going to lose? Um, you know, is it going to be effective? And, and yeah, like, like if you were, if you were wanting the best trajectory, if you were shooting, you know, thousand yards or 1500 yards, let's say when, which, we don't do that on animals, of course, but let's say you wanted that for just for having sheer horsepower trajectory. Yeah. We're going to have a big old long barrel on there. Um, for, for the, for the common hunter like myself or people that, that, that hunt the back country or even guys that are just hunting, you know, you drive to your stand, uh, for whitetails, you know, um, a shorter barrel, is going to be the way to go and, and, and the trajectory and the ballistics you're going to have out to six, 700 yards. It's, it's superfluous. So you're going to lose a hundred. I mean, it's a general consensus, a hundred to 150 feet per second. Um, from a 20, from a 20 inch barrel to a 20, uh, from a 24 inch barrel to a 20 inch barrel, let's say on most cartridges. And, and that does, that does nothing. I mean, you might have to come up a couple more clicks on your scope if you're dialing or you might have to hold this gauche more wind, but I think the benefits of having a shorter barrel are better nowadays than they ever have been. So yeah, that's what I see anyway. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the, there obviously was a time when you wanted something moving as fast and flat as possible. And a lot of that had to do with, more probability for unknown range, um, either not having the equipment or the time to get an accurate range. But as you said, okay, so you're moving a hundred feet, 150 feet per second slower, but you have this crazy accurate laser range finder that's telling you the distance. And so if it's a few more clicks or a little more hold or what have you, it is what it is at that point. No, exactly. You hit it right on the head, man. Uh, technology is taking us to, or we're constantly progressing in this industry and, and just, you nailed it, you know, back in the day, the Weatherby era, I call it, you know, they just had super fast rocket rifles, you know, and the reason why is because their inabilities to get the range they needed and, and stuff. So, yep, you, you nailed it for sure. What are, um, what are some of thoughts on maybe certain cartridges and not specifically maybe classes of cartridges that shouldn't go too short um you know for you see it come up on like some magnums for instance of like why why have all that powder of a magnum cartridge in case capacity if you don't have the barrel length to fully burn it for example like that is an argument you see thrown out there so is there sure. much truth that you see to that um yeah and no like for us personally we don't like going below 20 inches on anything um, we built a bunch of 308s back in the day and still do that are under 20 inch barrel lengths. But, um, we did some testing. I did some testing with uh, five proof research barrels, um, on a six, five PRC. And we ranged it from, from 18 to 16 inches. And I shot factory ammunition and hand loads out of it. And it was pretty interesting. What we found is that, you said, that we could sorry, take John, a, you said 18 to 16. Did you mean 18 to 26? No, 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 no. Like uh, sub twenty inches. Oh, probably. okay. You're just talking about I'm testing trying, the shorties. Yeah, gotcha. I, I, the, that two inch because I can't get any shorter really yeah. um, on it. So yeah, sorry about the confusion. But we 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 kept them short to see what what would happen, and and it was really uh, it was all over the board. Really, we got the rifles to shoot accurately. Um, the speeds were were basically the velocities we were getting are are were six five Creedmoor speeds, maybe a little more with hand loads. And it was just, uh, we're having to change some things that we weren't used to, i.e. the powder we used, uh, the burn rates, a bunch of stuff. And then, and then the actual harmonics of the gun itself was just different. Um, and anyway, that, that taught us, well, I think the 20 inch length was our threshold of, 
of what we liked, you know, and what, what worked well for what we were used to. Um, and, and so that's where we, we stuck it. Uh, and, and that's, I don't really, you can have success at shorter lengths, but I think with like the Magnum cartridges, you're really going to have a, a curve of what powders you use and, and stuff to get them to the velocities and, or the accuracy that you would deem necessary for, for the, for the move. So, um, yeah, totally. That's, that's pretty much where I'd be at. Okay. So. And I would assume it, because of everything you just mentioned, especially with powder choice and things like that, guys who are sh- strictly shooting factory, mm-hmm. um, they are going to be somewhat handicapped if they're also then reducing barrel length, right? Not only because maybe a factory uh, cartridge isn't loaded at speeds that could be attainable via hand load, but it's also not optimized necessarily for that shorter barrel. So for the guys who are shooting factory, there there could be more trade-off to a shorter barrel than a guy who's going to be able to hand load and truly build a load for that short barrel. No, for sure, man. And and uh, you're correct. Like the, the, the factory ammo guys, which... We love you guys. We're we'd shoot factory every day if we could. Um, saves time, but uh, but you're gonna see that you're you're gonna have some ammos that don't shoot well with longer barrels that shoot good with shorter barrels, and you're gonna see your pet hand load or excuse me, factory ammo that you use all the time not shoot too great. So just be prepared. Um, and usually it's it's got to do with the bullet weight um, and and the and twist rate of your barrel. Those the factory ammo that you're using with your 24 inch barrel or 26 inch barrel, those are usually what the they're tested with in the, in the factory settings. And there's a whole bunch of science that goes behind of what, what they do for the load to make them shoot with those type barrels. Cause that's the most common out there, of course. But, uh, but no, like I'm, we have no affiliation with burger. So just throw that out there, but burger ammunition, we use a lot, um, seems to shoot well, <laughs> pretty much with everything but uh that's that's kind of what we go with the hornady actually with the 65 prc stuff and the 65 creedmoor stuff um shoots shoots great for for both longer and shorter barrels um you'll notice that once you get to the shorter barrels that the heavier bullets don't shoot as well and you might have to drop down uh a bullet weight um other than that though they usually seem to go right back in there so just some information for guys doing that so it's cool what do you attribute that to the heavier bullet weight shorter barrel obviously it's uh you're losing some velocity there uh both on both fronts right a heavier bullet and a shorter barrel but in terms of it not necessarily grouping as well is there something more going on there or you're not quite sure what the reason for that is well i have I, everybody has their opinions but i mean from a mathematical standpoint um you're basically when you shorten something and, and you take away velocity you're changing the what you know the the gyroscopic spin as brian Litz would say or you, you're not the stabilization of the bullet is changed um it's it's not as stable when it's going slower not saying it's unstable it's just not as mm-hmm. not spinning as it was it's not before. starting as stable especially correct and yeah. so so that's what we see. And then, you, you know, you can mitigate that issue with twist rate. So you you, you help the stabilization by getting a, t- a faster twist. And then faster twist, uh, you, you sometimes see some issues with that. So it's it's kind of like just, just the sweet spot. And that's, instead of dealing with all the craziness, we might just drop a, go from a one, 147 to the 143 or the 130, let's say. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, and that, that seems to, to work well for what we do. So, um, man, a, an area that's completely new to me is custom actions. Um, I'm excited to get my hands on one here soon from you actually, which I'm uh, excited to check out for myself. Yeah. But in doing my own research, it is overwhelming. Even now, if guys start to get into the world of custom actions of just what's out there, um, you know, there's so many brands different features, things to look for, price points, et cetera. Like just what are some of the high level things that you want guys to think about? Um, and I feel comfortable asking you this question, John, just knowing you personally, like you're not like yeah. in this game to simply sell what you have. Like I know that you just generally want to help people. So I'm just like from a super high level first, like 
how do you pick between all these different options once you start to look at that world? No, it's it's definitely a, it's a crazy world, man. And I never would have got into the action world if I didn't have to when it came to uh, you know sustaining our our uh, survivability and lead times. But we'll get into that later. But there's so many awesome actions out there, and there's so many great companies, and we've dealt with them all um, personally. And and uh, you know, you know the biggest thing that people need to look at uh, that we've seen is is you know if you want a cool sticker that comes with your action or do you want something that actually is legitimate you know like and and i'll let people decide what action companies they go with and there's everybody's really good i mean i'll I'll throw it out there defiance has been there forever um you know stiller they've been in and out of the market and there's some changes going on with their company but they've been a huge uh standing uh they've stood out over the years you know um you know you got the board and actions we've got all sorts of stuff but now we're starting to see companies like ourselves i call us like a not a boutique shop but kind of for for custom gun parts and we're uh we're going to progress further but you know the reason reason these custom actions are popping up all over the place is because of of lead times on builds and these gun builders needing actions and it takes a ton of work and a ton of time and and simply put the any action manufacturers out there today cannot keep up with the demand and so uh you know if you're getting into the market and you're willing to wait for or or pay a little more money you can get some really good stuff out there um if if you wanting to uh try something that hasn't been proven you're 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 probably gonna you're probably gonna have some you know, you might have some reservations of, of whether you do that again. But long story short, the customer calls and asks me a question if this action is good or this company or whatever. We, we full blow give them the 100 percent exact and 90, 95 percent of these custom actions out there are just amazing. So, yeah. So when it came to your own action, obviously, as you said, there's a lot of good options on the market. But obviously, you look at having your own action you get to then make decisions, John, on here's what I want, right? So like for sure. from yep. a function design features perspective, talk about those decisions you made, right? And I'm not only curious to hear about your action, but just you but behind the process of like picking like here's what's important to me or here's the certain types of features I'm looking for. Um, how did you make those choices for your action? Why did you build it the way you did and maybe hit on some of you know what those bullet points are? No, for sure, man. Uh, uh, first and foremost, I'm a hunter, you know, and I, I live and that's what I live for, you know, and that's what we kind of base our company on is lightweight hunting. So I wanted something that that kind of fit that facet and I've always wanted. So um, it starts off with we have a stainless steel action and we have a, a titanium action and the titanium and everybody can get on the Internet and talk about titanium and, and go do that on their own. But long story short, it, it reduces the weight you know, dramatically. So basically it takes a 27 or 28 ounce stainless steel action and turns it into an 18, 19 ounce action with the same size platform. You know, you're not taking anything away from the actual structure of the, of the action. Um, uh, the next thing that we saw that we wanted, uh, we wanted something of course that fed reliably, um, and that you could just throw a bullet in and shut the bolt, you know, and don't have to worry about, you know, some control round feeding stuff that Winchester and some other uh, custom action companies are out there. So let's say you had to throw a round in real quick and it doesn't go in. You have to actually put it in the magazine and then load it, you know. So that was important to us. Um, another thing that was really important to us was the actual bolt throw. So when you open the bolt, how high it comes up on the action. And 90% of the actions are 95% of the actions, not exact percentage, I guess, but they're a 90 degree bolt throw. So the bolt comes up way up by the scope and they actually have a scallop in the bolt handle. Um, so it doesn't actually hit the scope and your thumb kind of gets in this awkward position. So with ours, it's 75 degrees. Um, so kind of like a Tika, the same kind of bolt throw, it comes up a certain degree and comes back and you don't have to worry about the bolt or your hand or anything getting in the way of, of the actual, uh, scope or anything like that. So it makes the bolt manipulation a whole lot quicker and smoother. Um, what else we wanted the tolerances to be 
as tight as anybody out there. Like uh, we always use defiance. Everybody uses defiance as a uh, as a stepping stone or a a uh, high quality point because they've been in the market and they do such a great job. You know, our actions, our our tolerances are amazing. Uh, they 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 stand with all the top companies. Um, if you needed to, let's say we were talking about prefits, our actions are capability. The uh, capabilities of prefits on uh, at barrels on our actions is is there, um, just like all the all the top companies. So that's coming down the road that people will see. That's kind of a fun thing. And then, uh, you know, we needed something that that is just durable and working all the time, like uh, like this antelope hunt. You know, we were we buried the rifle in sand on accident, and and then we uh, it rides in the back of a side by side and just gets covered in dirt and grime. And, or on my sheep hunt last year, where you know it was freezing at night and there was ice sitting on, you know on it, and then it it warms up and it gets wet. And, you know, we wanted that durability there, so um, that's pretty much that's pretty much everything we wanted to to mimic a Remington 700 footprint. Um, so stock like people that don't want to run our stocks they can run somebody else's stock and there's there's tons of options out there for them you know um yeah that's pretty much it man just build a just build a awesome lightweight backcountry action or something that you can just kind of you know use and abuse a little bit and be able to be successful still yeah there's a i haven't gotten my hands on it to take it apart and play with it but you have like a field strippable assembly right yeah, so the firing pin assembly comes comes out with no tools. Uh, that was a that was a, a awesome option. Um, you pop a primer or something, or or you actually get some debris, which will happen uh, eventually in inside your your bolt where it won't fire because there's something blocking the firing pin from coming down. You can actually take it apart in two seconds and. Uh, clean it out however you find a way to do it and then slap it back in there and, and get back in the game. So you're not, you're not stranded out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. That's cool. You guys, uh, you mentioned you do both the titanium and the stainless version, right? So all the same features, <laughs> what you just described, you can get in either one. Correct. Yeah. And, uh, there's a price difference. Uh, you know, retail price on the, uh, titanium actions is $1,399. And then the stainless steel actions are, are right at 900, and of course, and we'll talk later we'll, uh, um, on the pricing structure. But you know, you're basically saving ten, you know, nine to nine to eleven ounces, give or take, between the two. And so our gun builds that we're building with the titanium actions with the altitude stock proof research barrel, all those gun builds are averaging uh, five pounds, thirteen ounces to six pounds. Uh, four ounces depending on barrel length so mm-hmm. if you're really wanting to get lightweight that's the way to do it and have a, a gun that's full figured you know it's a real gun you know it's not nothing's taken away from it you know do you still see that as a i don't want to say trend is the right word but do you still see that as something that's popular from customers still wanting to seek that super light option yeah it is it's, it's getting more popular we see it um it, it just keeps on yeah, it just keeps growing and and i don't know how there's some things in the works that get lighter but i don't know how we're gonna get much lighter than what we are and keep the accuracy where we need it you know what i mean so mm-hmm. as the market the market is wanting lightweight and uh that we see and but there's also guys that hey i don't care if my rifle weighs seven pounds you know like yeah you know, it's so cool. You can choose whatever you want. And that's why we wanted both options, basically. Um, not every gun we build is lightweight, even mm-hmm. for ourselves. We just, uh, I think it, it fits a parameter. And we know that ounces equal pounds. And when you're packing back somewhere, we don't want, we don't have to deal with that. So mm-hmm. do you see a, would you see a, this is, I know, like, there's so many variables to this question. But I'm just curious to hear, like, first thoughts. Is you go lighter in rifle weight and then obviously pair that with bigger hard-hitting calibers, hard-hitting on game as well as the shoulder, right? Mm-hmm. Do you Would you caution guys or maybe question them, not question their abilities, maybe their experience on pairing like, yeah, I want to build a 600 or I want to build a six-pound 300 PRC, for example. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, like, do you help guys think through that? Is that a legitimate concern? 
It it is, and and recoil the perception of recoil is felt differently through everybody's different, and uh, and is a conversation that that comes up, and and as long as they know um, that when you're taking away mass from the rifle and you have a big magnum cartridge, the recoil impulse is going to be significantly more. Fortunately, and I'll I'll throw it back to the, the design of the altitude stock with the with the modified vertical grip. Um, that actually takes away um, felt recoil into the shoulder and, and in the face. Um, and, and also we use a lot of muzzle brakes. Like every gun we build has a muzzle brake on it. And that's, that's up for discussion and review with everybody. Cause everybody has different perceptions of that. But I mean, basically is we put a muzzle brake on it and what we use is very effective. So it takes a 28 nozzler, 300 PRC, 300 wind mags, totally tones them down to where it's feasible. I can go, for example, I can go test shoot, let's say five, 300 wind mags at the range wearing a t-shirt. I use a bipod front and a rear bag. I can shoot 40 to 60 rounds at that session and not have a hurt shoulder. Um, uh, or even know that I shot that much, you know what I mean? So that gives you a perception of what the felt recoil is with these guns. Um, now, if you don't have a muzzle brake on there, it's going to be a whole different world um, for you. So, yeah. Um, but basically, I hunt alone a lot, or I hunt with one other person. Uh, I have to see where my bullet's hitting. So that's where I just, my personally decide what cartridge I want to use, how much recoil I want to deal with, because I got to get back in the scope and see where that impact was right away. You know, I can't miss that. Mm. So that's a decision that everybody has to make with themselves as well. Yeah. It's so. it's such an overlooked factor that I think a lot of guys don't think about just that, yeah, just I mean, seeing spotting impacts, as you said, especially when you're solo or what have you and how that is dependent on cartridge choice. That's huge, man. That's the reason, I mean, we hit on a little bit in the beginning of this. That's the reason why I went with that Creedmoor, um, for this, for the, for this year's antelope hunt and, uh, and some other stuff we have coming up is because I know I have to be the one seeing the impacts. And if I don't, I could blow a world-class animal, you know, an opportunity on a world-class animal because of my inabilities. If the, I mean, we all miss, I mean, I don't care who you are. Um, or if you make a poor shot, you need to be able to, to adjust whatever that was and make it happen. So, well, that's where it's at. Hmm. So another, uh, component like decision question this could apply to a custom build as well as maybe guys looking to upgrade factory stuff is pros and cons this is something i personally talked to you about for my build um but it came up in listener questions as well pros and cons on detachable bottom metal magazine fed systems versus something just like a bdl you know your hinge four plate um so again comes down to preferences and all kinds of things but how do you help guys think through that no, for sure. Uh, it's a, it's a big topic. Uh, we like, so let's hit on the reasons why you would go with a detachable mag system, I guess, i.e. Uh, accuracy international or HS precision type, uh, system. Um, the convenience of being able to unload your gun, make it safe and transition from a vehicle or a plane or whatever you're doing it with a magazine is, it's so simple. Um, the reloading side of things, I guess if you're you're in a pretty intense uh, shooting session with an animal or, or at the range, you can reload a whole lot quicker with a magazine. Um, it's it holds your ammo for you. It kind of it's self-contained. So we like those factors of it. Um, the the cons of that whole of the thing is that if we're hunting uh, and we have our ammunition in a magazine and it's in our gun, the biggest thing that happens is that the magazine falls out. Or we've seen it 50% of the time is the magazine gets left at camp. So now we're up on the mountain and we have to try to single feed this rifle because we left the magazine or we lost it. And Mm -hmm. uh, it happens all the time. And so that's that's the biggest uh, con, I think. And also with detachable magazine systems for your hand loaders, most of them are too short to load the full length of the the capabilities of the cartridge and then you run into, you know, issues of accuracy and, and not to be able to load the ammo that shoots good and all that stuff. But the long story short, 
if it's an important hunt and you're back in the backcountry and stuff like that, we kind of shy towards the the BDL floor plate, hinge floor play or the Remington style um, option. And yeah. and, the, and the biggest con of that is that you know unloading and loading, making it safe, dropping. You're always dropping rounds out of it when you're you know when you're transitioning from from uh, loading it and unloading it. Um, you know, but it's self-contained. It never really fails. Um, and you don't really lose anything. So Mm -hmm. it's just, it's just the inconvenience of having to top load your, your rifle, I guess is, 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 is the biggest con. So. That's good. That's helpful. Um, let's hit a couple questions on the stocks. Uh, these are ones that I, God, I got this specific question, John, at least 10 times uh, since my Tika build and talking about it. Right. Okay. So can an altitude stock for a Tika sporter barrel be fitted to a carbon barrel later? Because guys saw me do that, right? So I started with the altitude stock, factory light barrel from the Tika, then later got the proof. Um, so then guys are asking that question, or should I get a Mesa stock with a proof contour now even though I still have a factory barrel and want to upgrade to a proof later. So again, if guys didn't quite get that, a proof barrel, Sendero, Sendero Light is going to have a much uh, thicker, wider profile than the factory Tika barrel. If they're getting a stock upgrade from you or someone else, the barrel has to, or the stock has to be inleted to have clearance for that larger barrel. So if a guy's has a factory barrel now, he wants to do a stock upgrade as a first step, and either will or maybe eventually upgrade to a proof or something else later, what should he do? Yeah, totally. Uh, it's, I get this conversation, have this conversation quite a bit as well. Um, I, I gave the option to all the customers that buy our stocks that if they need to open up their stock, their, their stock opened up to a proof research or a bigger barrel later is that we, we're going to, we have a process of they send the stock back to us we actually put it back in the same fixturing it was cut out on on a CNC machine and we'll actually open it up for you. The cost of that's a hundred dollars for us to do that for you. Um, so that allows you to have uh, aesthetically good looking stock or a barrel channel for your factory barrel. And then, and then when you go to the upgrade, we will take that stock back and we will put it on that CNC machine and cut it out to the proof, proof research uh, contour. Now, if, if, if aesthetics isn't a hundred percent what you care about and you don't care, you know, you're going to upgrade later. And it's probably a good idea to have that barrel contour, uh, of the proof research cut first. Um, me personally, I wouldn't like that just from the way it would look, but there's a lot of guys that are more practical than I am and it wouldn't bother them and it, it wouldn't change accuracy or anything like that. It would just aesthetically look, look different. So it'd be free for it as all get out. Yeah, no <laughs> but I mean, you have a place to put some more ammo or something. But <laughs> no. uh, in all honesty, we're here to support. We want you guys. You do not have to buy a new stock. We do not want to sell you another stock. We use that one, and if and and honestly, if you want to open it up yourself, it's that thing's tough, man. And we're here to help you through it if that's what you want to do. But it, we're here if you want to have us open it up, send it back. I can. I can open it up for you guys and you don't have to stress or worry about any clearance issues or messing anything up. So, um, let's wrap up John before we get into some final stuff with hitting optics a little bit. Uh, again, I hesitate to ask this question cause I know it's super broad and high level, but it came up and I thought it'd be interesting to at least touch on it. Yeah. The context is, can you demystify the optics industry slash brands? It seems like most companies actually come from the same factories, right? Correct. So again, super high level, but uh, maybe touch on that for guys who may be unaware, not quite understand what all's at play there. No, and uh, the optics world is a, like you said, it's a mystical beast for sure. And uh, the perception of what's really happening, but um it's all it's all about price points really and 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 I hate to say that because with optics you kind of get what you pay for um and you kind of don't I guess on some tokens sometimes you like like let's put vortex let's throw it out there they are the number one brand I think seeing 
when it comes to people think they're getting more than what they pay for, which is good. Um, there's things that, that they do to make those price points where they're at. And, and there's some functions that, that they probably should work on. But then if they did, the, the scope would cost a thousand dollars more. So, um, you know, we're seeing huge leaps and bounds in the industry, even though most of these scopes are made out of the same factory and the glass comes out of the same factory. Um, they still have their twist they put on it, you know, and, and a lot of it becomes into the turret systems and the internal uh, functionings of this optic. So let's put glass quality aside, what, what scope sees better than the other one and all that stuff, because I, that's all about the prescription of glass these companies are willing to, ba- to pay for it you know, to put in these, these optics. So now let's go to actual functionality and repeatability. Uh, a $700 scope is, I don't care what anybody says is not going to function or be as robust and, and strong as a $3,000 scope. That being said, $3,000 scopes still fail. So I guess what we're doing by spending more money is we're, we're trying to mitigate the variables of something bad going on. And I, the percentage is better on your side if you spend more money on your optic or as much money as you can. Now, if the scope is two to $300 difference in price, you're not going to see any real difference in, in functionality. You're kind of in that same price bracket. But if you jump up $1,000, i.e., you go from a Vortex Razor HD up to um, a Zeiss V6, you know, um, you're going to see a lot of different options and, and, uh, qualities of that optic, you know? So mm-hmm. everybody's just got to put it as much money as they can into their optic. I'm not going to go into brands. We personally use loophole Mark five series scopes. That's the only loophole optic we use. We use Swarovski X five series scopes. Um, we've actually, use Zeiss V4 series scopes, which is an awesome scope for the price point. Um, so feel confident with that. And then uh, we don't use a lot of Vortex. Um, and that's pretty much it. So that's what works for us. And that's where we feel comfortable at. Um, but there's a lot of other good stuff out there. So from the consumer standpoint, if, if you're going to make a huge leaps and bounds in, in the quality of your optic and you, you're going to have to move, like, let's say the optic costs a thousand dollars. You're going to have to go to that $2,000 range, uh, barring any, any crazy, uh, gimmickry with the company to get, a, uh, you know, the next quality or next level of, of functionality. So cool. that's yeah, what you, we see. Yeah. And you even see that within brands, right? Like they're not all brands have drastically different price point tiers, but some do. Um, and so, yeah, you can even, if you wanted to take a brand name out of it and just look at what are you getting for the cost? And as you look at that, it's not only going to be features, it's going to be, as you said, like the reliable mechanics in terms of repeatability and things like that. Yeah. It's all in the turret systems. We're all dialing our scopes generally nowadays and, and the way they construct their turrets. Um, I'll throw them out there. Night force has, has an unbelievable turret system they use. We love it. Um, I, I mean, I guess we use night force quite a bit too. Uh, but like like we're talking now, I'm not directly tied to any brand. We just we just sell and use what we believe believe it in what's works. So yeah. Um, a direct question from a listener: What is the ideal magnification range for a mountain rifle? So again, some variables left out here in terms of shot distances, etc. But just hearing that question in general, what are your thoughts on magnification range? Yeah, people. This is a huge conversation we have all the time. I am on the side of uh, an optic that's in a three power to 18 power range is, is ideal for, for all of mountain hunting. If we, uh, or any kind of long range precision shooting for that matter, if we wanted to see, you know, sit down a hundred yards and, and really zoom in on our target and not care if we get kicked out of the scope or not, um, not seeing our impacts then a five to 25 power would be it. But when it comes to mountain hunting, there's no need to have anything that's that's over 18 power to be successful. If you're throwing out scenarios here, John, if you're running a three to 18, three to 15, something like that, and let's say you have a 400 yard shot, mm-hmm. what power are you on? Or does it I vary? Generally, 
I don't go over 12 power usually. Um, uh, 90% of the time I might, I might go up to, uh, you, you know, in, even if I'm running, let's say I have a five to 25, cause I, I would be lying to you if I said I don't have and use them, but like a five to 25 power, I, I don't go over 12 to, to 14 power ever. And that's, that's through a lot of shooting. Like, like I'll throw this out there. We just shot that horn of the, uh, precision hunter challenge the other day over here in our hometown. And we shoot a lot of PRS matches and, and precision rifle matches and stuff. And you learn that, that, that magnification, it, it can hinder you really quick if you have it too high. And that's all about seeing your impacts. And, and also there's at a 12 power. I'm able like that antelope. I just shot at 400 yards on the nose <laughs> the other day. I was on, I think, uh, 11 to 12 power. Um, and I put that bullet right where I wanted it and saw the impact. Everything was good. So it's, it's just, you know, we like see, we like big things in America. We like big magnification. We really like to see what we're, we're shooting at, but in the reality context of performance, it really holds us back because you've been with people, they shoot, Oh, where'd I hit? Or where did he go? And they can't find him in the scope and you have to back out of the scope, find the animal again. And it turns into a rodeo really quick. So, but yeah. Um, one more optics related question that came up rails versus rings for hunting rifles. Uh, I know like even on your actions, you guys can do both, right? Like a direct ring system or a rail system. So again, helping customers think through pros and cons there. Yeah, totally. It's all about rails. Uh, they're super, super rigid. They're super tough. Uh, you know, but then you have to stack uh, rings on top of them and, and generally, those rings have to be just as tough, you know, and if we don't do that, then we're kind of, we're, we're creating a problem, so to speak, maybe. Um, and another thing with rails is that generally gets the scope a lot further off the gun. And then we run into cheek weld issues or, or shooting, uh, or shooting, uh, you know, problems problems with being able to see through the scope. So, so rails are great. Uh, definitely not needed. Um, we actually use a ton of Hawkins precision long range, uh, hybrid rings, I believe he calls them. And the way those are constructed is you get the same rigidity as, as a rail, so to speak, but, but we're able to not only save weight, we save money cause we don't have to buy an extra set of rings and we, you know, has a bubble level on it, which we can get into later if you want. Um, and it accomplishes, it holds the scope super tight and we remove a joint. So a possible failure point of something coming loose. So, I think the hybrid rings like like Tally makes them. We use a lot of and and Hawkins Precision. They work. They work amazing. Cool. Yeah, hit on the bubbles, John. I uh, seems like people are all over the map. Some guys say they're critical and that you know any slight amount of cant is going to throw things off. You know, a, a noticeable amount. You got other guys who say, okay, there's some. There's some uh, truth to that in terms of cant, but most bubble systems are not reliable and, you know, the bubble itself can be off and throw things off. So where do you land on is having a bubble helpful slash necessary um, for a hunting rifle? Um, necessary, no, is it you still can be successful. It's just... I, I would prefer people have them if they're going to be shooting past 400 yards. Um, they're basically the first thing is you have to make sure your level is, is plumbed perfect, perfectly to the bore, i.e. you need to make sure that's perfectly vertical. Your reticle from the, uh, from the cross there and the, and the horizontal lines are perfectly horizontal and, and we can get into a conversation. We can know how to test for that. It's really easy. Um, I can do something after this to help people with that. But long story short is, okay, now our reticles perfectly plumbed to the, the, the bore, everything's level. And now we need to make sure our level mimics that. So the biggest problem I see with people with bubble levels is they don't go through the proper processes of setting them up properly to actually make them work the way they're supposed to. Um, if your bubble levels off from your reticle, then you're going to be way off everywhere. So it kind of creates a, a bad thing. Now, the, the effects of actually have a canted rifle, it is pretty significant. Um, fortunately, as humans and people are better at this than others, we're, 
we're able to to internally look through something and make it level you know like we can actually compensate to a certain degree um but not good enough when we're starting to talk about extended ranges past 400 yards um you can actually be six to seven inches off on one side or the other right or left which way you have that thing canned you know um so it can get pretty significant and usually that only happens if you're really you know it happens when we're shooting on a tough angled shot uh on the side of a slope and you can't it's just super tough to get a level you know what i mean mm-hmm. so it it's important it's not necessary but we recommend it <laughs> so yeah. it, but if you're gonna go down that road there's uh there's some websites out there just type in uh, you know accurate shooter is an awesome website that pick up a ton of information how these guys do it and we might throw something out there on our our social media to maybe help explain or actually show the effects you know and people can kind of see what happens and let them make their decision so cool john i don't want to uh soak up your whole morning here we're gonna an hour plus already i know that's um this is going to be helpful. Like everything we hit is questions I see pop up over and over. I also know that you're happy to help chat with guys, uh, whether that's about, you know, as we've said, a custom build or upgrading a factory rifle or things like that. So is that, I mean, the best way to move forward, if guys have questions, just give the shop a call and you guys are happy to help. Or what would you suggest if guys are, you know, either wanting to add new life to a rifle they have or consider if, you know, a new build is something that would benefit them? No, for sure. Yeah. Like we're all on the same team here. We want, everybody wants the same goals and we're here to help anybody, uh, you know, reach out to us, give me a call. If, if we don't answer, um, which we have somebody always answering, but if I can't come to the phone right away and you need an answer, uh, shoot me an email in a, a, you know, after work hours and stuff. I, I love answering emails at that time because I can really soak in the conversation that way. And then we can follow up with a phone call, but but basically, I, I, we're here for you. Uh, make sure you reach out to us. Uh, we don't turn anything away. Uh, we direct you to the correct people. If we can't, if we can't support your needs, we get you in, in connected with the people that can. But uh, but yeah, we're here for for everybody. So, cool. um, so if you guys want to pull that contact info, the website's Mesa Preci- Mesa Precision Arms, and I'm assuming the email and all that's just straight through there. Yeah, go in there. There's a contact form you can fill out. Or if you just uh, go to – my name is John, of course. So it's john at mesaprecisionarms.com. And then, of course, hit us up on Facebook or Instagram with any questions, and we'll we'll get after it. So. Cool. John, thanks as always, man. I uh, you know I truly do appreciate you because I know that just in our own conversations outside the podcast, as you just said, like you're just happy to help guys. Like you're a hunter yourself who wants to help hunters, and uh, appreciate that, man.